The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stone Man's Book Group. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage, with myself as your host, Paul J. Laverty on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. And we're here in Noongar Buja country in southwest Western Australia in partnership with the 2022 Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. David Wish-Wilson was born in Newcastle, New South Wales, but grew up in Singapore, Victoria and WA. He left Australia aged 18 to live for a decade in Europe, Africa and Asia. David lives in Fremantle and coordinates the creative writing program at Curtin University and his latest novel, The Sawdust House, is out now via Fremantle Press. David Wish-Wilson, thank you for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage as part of the 2022 Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. Cheers, Paul. Good to be here. Yeah. Now, you're a firm friend of the show. And a bit of disclosure here as well. You are my creative writing PhD supervisor. Mm-hmm. And you're usually the one asking me questions about my work. But today... Yeah, that's right. I get, get to do this to you. <laughs> Payback. <laughs> so, first off, what an incredible piece of work. The, the, the Sawdust Host is. is I, I enjoyed it immensely. For those that haven't heard about it, it, it's based on the true life story of James Yankee Sullivan, a 19th century boxer. How true is it to his actual real life? And, and yeah, can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so it's, it's um, like, with, like with anything on the historical record in the 19th century, um, when, when talking about a character like him, so he was an ordinary ordinary man. He wasn't, um, although he was well-known, became a kind of a notorious figure, he wasn't a, uh, you know, a merchant or a politician. He wasn't the kind of person that um, was going to write his own autobiography. Mm-hmm. So what I know about him is uh, newspaper reports. There was a book written about him when he was in New York, but... Um, Part of the joy of writing this book was the research process, which started with a couple of anecdotal stories about him when he was in San Francisco. And then I traced them back. I found his um, court records mm-hmm. when he was a 13-year-old in Whitechapel. He's born in Cork, yep. born in Cork in 1813. But when he was 13 in Whitechapel, he, he nicked a bloke's handkerchief mm-hmm. and was sentenced to 14 years hard labour in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, Essentially because he was cheeky to the judge in the court, which probably wasn't, you know, if he had his time again, might not have done the same thing. But anyway, he, he lobbed up in Australia. Um, he's just, we know very little about him there. What we do know is um, sketchy, handwritten uh, ledger book um, entries relating to his uh, serial escapes and mm-hmm. being rearrested. And a couple of newspaper articles. And by the age of 16, he'd escaped and been recaptured so many times, they sent the poor bastard to uh, Moreton Bay Penal Establishment, which yeah. I don't know if you've heard that drone song, 16 Straws. Great song. But 
Moreton Bay Penal Establishment was a real terrible place. Mm. Um, it was run by a Scotsman, mm-hmm. um, Commandant Logan, and it was the kind of place where he um, he sometimes had his own soldiers whipped to death. Um, so it was a really tough place to be, a 16-year-old wow. prisoner. And he even escaped from there for two months. I don't know where he was or what he was doing, but he's obviously pretty resourceful because in those days there was only the Queensland bush outside of this little white area. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was eventually recaptured. Went back to Sydney, did some more time. Um, then newspaper reports start to appear about him um, being a, a bare-knuckle boxer, mm-hmm. um, developing a reputation. And I guess when he got a stake together, he escaped on a whaler to New Zealand and then to New York, um, where he, he really quickly established himself in a place um, Charles Dickens described as the worst slum in the world, wow. um, worse even than Whitechapel. Um, and that was the Five Points area of New York. Mm-hmm. And so he's this guy, he's, you know, he's Irish, but he's grown up in London, but he's also grown up for most of his life in Australia, mm-hmm. lobs up in New York. Um, and the remarkable thing about him is within a pretty short period of time, he'd become quite a well-known and celebrated figure. So he's obviously a bit of a character. Yeah, yeah. He's considered by some to be the, the father of American boxing because he, um, he was the first kind of Brit or Irish person who um, fought, you know, public bouts, um, Americans, you know, there's a newspaper article in the book where they say that's actually a really good thing, um, Yankee Sullivan boxing, because men no longer shoot them, shoot each other and, and knife each other. They, uh, they, they, they try and work things out with their, uh, yeah. their dukes. Yeah. And um, he became a pretty well-known figure in that Scorsese uh, milieu, gangs of New York. Like yeah. he, he, knew, he was a friend of Butcher Bill Poole and all those guys. And he had his own gang and he belonged to a fire, fire crew, the Spartans. Um, but what really cemented his reputation was when he um, very cheekily sailed back to America and keeping his identity secret, of course, because he was still an escaped convict, mm-hmm. challenged the American middleweight champion Hammer Lane to a boxing bout mm-hmm. at Crookham Con- Common in the middle of winter. And there's a full journalistic blow-by-blow description of that of that particular bout. Um, but he had to get out of there pretty quick because apparently word got around that he was... Who he who he well he he wasn't who he was saying he was yeah. he was in fact maybe an escaped convict so he got back to America but you know America having kicked the Brits out they uh, sell it, they they liked the idea of this guy who would dare go back and uh, rub their noses in it mm-hmm. and yeah he 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 started his own bar called the Sawdust House and in his older life. Like, you know, old for those days, in his late 30s and, and early 40s, he, he ended up in San Francisco, where so many other Australians were living, um, and became involved in politics, because a guy like him was pretty useful to the political parties, because um, they used to use, use standover merchants to make sure that, uh, you know, votes were cast in the right, you know, to the right people. Mm-hmm. At least that was the allegation against him, and, he, and he, he's in jail um, in the book, he's very worried. He hasn't eaten. He hasn't slept for a few days. Um, he's he's sinking into depression, which is something his wife said that he suffered from. He's terrified of being sent back to Australia for obvious reasons. And with his mind going, he starts up a friendship with a young journalist and starts to tell, because he suspects that um, he may be reaching the end of his time on earth, because some of the prisoners in the other cells are being lynched 
dragged out in the street and hung. He knows it's going to be, if that happens, it's a pretty humiliating way to go out. Mm -hmm. And so he starts to tell, in a kind of a vulnerable way, the story of his life. In bits and pieces, it's a discontinuous kind of narrative rather than a a pretty a standard narrative mm-hmm. I guess you know and that bit would be fictionalized the bit where he tells his life that 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 bit mm-hmm. is fictionalized we know he was in that particular prison um, so all the descriptions of the prison are there are, are correct um, but the journalist character is a fictional creation mm-hmm. and and their conversations obviously are therefore fictional but I needed someone to draw out his story because most mm-hmm. of what was known about Yankee in America was very kind of colourful, roguish, almost a celebrity figure, um, of which there was lots of mythologisation mm-hmm. and self-mythologisation because he didn't want people to know his real name um, in case he got mm-hmm. sent back to Australia. And so this is an opportunity to get past all of that surface um, mythologisation and try and get to the real story of you know where he'd come from and why he'd done what he's done and... Uh, mm-hmm. And, yeah, the young journalist is, is receptive to that and he, he wants to tell that story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you why you focused on his life because it's such an incredible story. I mean, uh, as we spoke earlier, Walt Whitman makes an appearance. I also couldn't believe the sums of money involved. Mm. Like, he must have been quite a wealthy man at some point. I mean, $10,000, wasn't it, one of his fights in yeah, so that, that, uh, that was a, a, yeah, a stake. Uh, he, lost, yeah. he lost that one. Um, in contested circumstances, but uh, it was it was complicated by the fact that boxing was illegal in those days. So, but it was a huge logistical operation because you had mm-hmm. to go because everybody who attended and definitely the two boxers were at risk of being arrested. And and Yankee Sullivan did do two years in jail mm-hmm. in New York jail for boxing. Um, so you had to take. And a crowd of about 5,000 people and somehow get them into the countryside without the coppers noticing <laughs> to a location which was, you know, kept a secret until the last... A bit like raves, I suppose, yeah, you know, yeah. without the benefit of uh, smartphones. You yeah. Know? Um, and then they would say, with, with that $10,000 fight, they set up a decoy fight with two men that looked like Yankee Sullivan and Tom Hire. And so the coppers went oh, to that yeah. one and, and they arrested mm. those guys. And they just didn't say anything. They just pretended yeah. to be until they, the coppers realised they had the wrong people. Meanwhile, the real fight was taking place on another island. So it was, it, it was different. It was more like UFC now. There's grappling and kicking and all of that kind of thing rather than just being standard boxing. It was bare knuckles. Yeah. Um, pretty, uh, pretty ugly. And um, the, the fight went until it was finished. So some, yeah. you know, one... one one bout Yankee Sullivan was involved in went for 133 yes. rounds. Yeah, saw that. Pretty freakish athletes, and but it was different. Oh, compare that to UFC now, where a fight can last, you know, 30 seconds. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, on, I mean, for me, it had echoes on the screen of, like, Peaky Blinders and, like we mentioned, uh, Scorsese's Gangs of New York as well. And on the pages, a little bit like George Saunders' Lincoln of the Bardo, as well as how you mess with the form. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the book yet, you know, you, I de- you dedicate entire pages to a first-person perspective of, of different characters, but some of these just run to, you know, three, four words on one page. Yeah. What was your 
yeah, how did you come to that decision to, to write it like this? Because there's many ways you could have taken it. Yeah, I, I just wanted, I wanted to be truthful to his um, state of mind, being in, being in prison, thinking that he's probably, you know, these are his last days. Mm-hmm. He's He hasn't eaten, he hasn't slept, he's sinking into depression, he's worried. And here's this young guy who's willing to listen to him. And yet he can't he can't be fully coherent. So I wanted the use of white space on the page because, like you say, on some pages there's just a single line, mm. a single paragraph. I wanted that white space to work to create a bit of silence, you know, to to to, to I guess um, represent that fracturing of his his own internal narrative, um, but also to represent the breaking down of his ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to for when you do when you do have just a couple of lines on a page, like in a poem, it really foregrounds the language or the words you've chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted it to do that as well. It was an interesting choice. I haven't told a story like that before, but it was yeah. it was actually a fascinating way to go about it. Yeah. Probably similar to like um, on Darcy's uh, Billy the Kid did, mm-hmm. did something reasonably similar and in style, maybe a bit like um, some of Tom Franklin's historical novels mm-hmm. and. Maybe a bit of Peter Carey, and mm-hmm. yeah, it was. At the same time, none of those were really influences. It was um, it was just a process of uh, mucking around, figuring it out, seeing if it was going to work. Mm-hmm. And when I finished it, I, I didn't know whether it had worked or not. So mm-hmm. I was happy to hear that it had. Mm-hmm. And you've written about this era before in the coves yeah and a bit of the setting is from this is in um san francisco as well the australian community there Uh, are there more stories there to be told by you oh yeah um i've got a i've got a couple of you know one of the first places in in the world that mugshots were used was in san francisco in the 1850s and this they'd been used in paris and new york before but that apart from that was just that san francisco was the third place mugshots had been used the daguerreotype or photograph had only just been invented. But they needed them in San Francisco because there were so many Australian criminals who, uh, unless they lynched them, they would either escape or they'd be exiled and they would just come back under a new name and go back to their old trade. So they took photographs of these people and put them in shop windows, mm-hmm. like saying, you know, we know, you're no, you know your real name is this and if you come in, you're going to be recognised. And, and some of those mug shots... And, were taken when some of these Australians and Kiwis were sent to San Quentin mm. as well. So, you know, there's one very haunting picture of a, which has really stayed with me, of a, um, a New Zealand brothel owner called Rose Church. And she died in San Quentin. Um, but there's just, her, the, her face is just so... You know, there's so many stories in her face mm-hmm. in, and, in, and in her eyes. And all, all we get on the San Quentin record is brothel owner has terrible teeth um, charged with stealing from a customer or something like that, you know. But there's a lot of story in her face, like I said. So there's, there's a few other characters I might go back to down the track. But the overall story of how many Australians there were mm-hmm. and why they were there and what happened to them when they were there, it's a bit covered in the coast, but there's a lot more to be uh, said about it as well, I think. Wonderful. David Wish-Wilson, we have to leave it there. Your new novel, The Sawdust House, is out now by Fremantle Press. Thank you for talking to us on The Quiet Carriage once again. 
Enjoy the rest of the festival. Most welcome. Thanks for having me on. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. And we're here covering the 2022 Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. Ruth McIver completed her PhD in the field of true crime-inspired fiction with Curtin University. Her first novel, Nothing Gold, was runner-up in the inaugural Banjo Prize 2018. Ruth's novel and verse, The Sunset Club 2014, is a DIY publication that was highly commended in the Anne Elder category by the Fellowship of Australian Writers. I Shot the Devil won the 2018 Richelle Prize for Emerging Writers and is out now via Hachette. Ruth McIver, thank you for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage as part of the 2022 Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival. Thank you for having me, Paul. <laughs> and we should say we're, we're, we were carpool buddies. We, we were day. carpool okay. buddies. We're also now... Um, flatmates? Flatmates. Yeah. yeah, we are. For the yeah. weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we go way back. <laughs> And you are here essentially releasing, what do you call it, like a second edition? Yeah, it's like novel? a B version. I keep calling it a B side, so but it's a B version. I don't really know what that is, not being a crime writer. So I'm uh, I think it's just, people. look, I, I, it's not just a crime, but I think with um, with books, they have like a, a few different versions. And mm. basically it just means it's a different size. Same page count, word count, um, obviously. It's just a different version um, and it has a different price because obviously it's a much smaller book, like it's a paperback. Mm -hmm. So it just means that, you know, um, the book is probably a little bit more accessible in terms of like, you know, it'll be 20 bucks instead of 32, right, your, tra yeah. your trade paperback. And then, yeah. So that's, they call it the B version. And yeah. it, but in this case, sometimes I just change the colours this for this one I got a different cover entirely yeah. so yeah. yeah and that was a um you know that was my agent's decision so yeah. um yes yeah, so, and it's a very different aesthetic as you you probably will note it um, screams airport to me you well know, I think that's what, it that's what it's coded to be and I think that um you know with the first cover it's very dark and it's a little bit more literary and it's a little bit more like Donna Tartt um, secret yes. history this yeah. is you know and also a little bit lisa Tadeo. um yes. you know it's 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 coded differently um and this one is a little bit more thriller i suppose so yeah so it's just a different marketing te mm -hmm. technique or strategy so Mm -hmm. yeah and i went to your launch or relaunch the other night am i the only person that's went to both launches Oh my god, you are! I think I am, yeah, actually. because I, do, I thank you by the way. Because I, yeah, like your, well, it's sort of your launch that I kind of jumped That's onto, right, really. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I haven't really had my own launch until this yeah, recent yeah, Fremantle yeah. one because I just kind That's of um, piggybacked onto yours, yeah. which was cool. More than welcome. It was just before. <laughs> it was just before my book actually came out. So I got a early, I got a bunch of copies yeah. um, and Northern Books were obviously good enough to have me and host me and stuff alongside you. Mm -hmm. And then on, yeah, like last week, uh, it was my actual own launch, but it wasn't the first cover, obviously. It was the B version. So mm -hmm. obviously the book been out for some time. Uh, so this is just a way to kind of like celebrate it and commemorate it, but also to kind of like push the, the new B version. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but it was my first actual IRL <laughs> really, I guess. So 
And at the launch, you were saying that you've cooked up a sequel. I have. So presumably the novel has done well enough that, um, you know, you've made that call. I mean, was it was it you who made that call? Or was it I made that call. Um, I think originally when I first, you know, uh, probably when I was selling the book or, mm. or whatnot, um, I think there was a discussion about that. And I actually talking about this today in my panel, like how I was adamantly, no, standalone, this is a standalone. Mm. And then I decided that I wanted to write a sequel. And then shortly after that, I was mortified and really upset with myself because I couldn't write it. I did all this research and this is when I still had my little studio in the Nicholas building and I had my storyboard and, you know, I'd written about 10,000 words or something Mm -hmm. and it was just stalled and then I moved to shoot and I thought I'm gonna finish it Mm -hmm. and I just didn't and then I had to write something else and then I kept trying I kept trying I kept trying but it only happened when I moved back to Perth Mm. and what I realized when I was walking around Frio was all of the street names and all of the kind of like the maritime sort of components I was like this is where my book like it's obviously set in Long Island, but it was like I needed to be in Fremantle to write it. Mm-hmm. So it was like I was in the right place at the right time and I'd been waiting to go over to Perth like you know and you were too. Um, but it was like the book had to be written there and I needed I needed to write it then. So all of the stuff that I'd done in my head sort of lined up on the page. So that's why I was able to write it so quickly because I think I'd spent all that time kind of like fluffing around and thinking about it but not writing it and then mm-hmm. suddenly it just all poured out. So In a month? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That's very impressive. It was insanity <laughs> and truthfully I thought I was like, look, you can't do this. Like I've done 30,000 words in three weeks before which to me seems like in a really a huge amount of words this time I thought, no, this is wild. Like you're just putting yourself in a situation where you're probably going to just drop dead afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> You'll finish it and then that's it. You know, you just uh, – but truthfully it wanted to come out and it wanted to be born like that and that's yeah. the way that I wrote – I needed to write that book. And like it was hard and challenging and, you know, stressful but it was also somehow really weirdly enjoyable because I, I think doing the nine to five stuff and just like deep, 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 deep. And then also like a little bit of constipated words and a little bit of constipated mm-hmm. words. It's like, it doesn't feel as good as going to that mania place, mm. that creative mania. And I, yeah, I was resisting the mania, but mm-hmm. it needed to happen. So mm-hmm. yeah. I love a bit of mania. I love yeah. creative mania. When you mania. catch that wave and you just like. Well, it, that's the thing, but it's, I'm weirdly resistant to it too, because I don't want to go mental. Yeah. And also the other thing is like, I know that it's really bad for my mental and physical health. And also I don't, I neglect all my friendships and I neglect all these other things. And like, I don't pay bills and I don't go to the gym and I don't do all those things. And I guess like, obviously you have kids and a partner. And so it's like, those things are also very important to think about too. So it's sort of like you, there's part of you that wants the normalcy or craves the normalcy or routine, which I do. I, Mm -hmm. I, I'm speaking for myself. I need it to stay sane and, and to keep, working long term but in the short term i do need to go a bit nuts yeah, and yeah, have yeah. a little bit of like just make creative mania and drink coffee at all hours and you know um but yeah also i injured my hand yes. just before that too so that was kind of crazy and riding through the injury and on painkillers and yeah mm. so that was pretty wild but yeah. it's part of the story yeah so 
I miss the mania. I can't do the mania now. You're right with kids. It's it's just. I, I just think you're a bit, bit Jack Nicholson. Yeah. A bit, yeah, a bit scary. Yeah. And it's like I guess you have to get up and you. I, I guess the thing with kids is routine. You know, it's yeah. like and it's so important. Um, I do think though, like. Unfortunately, I think most humans thrive on a routine. Yeah. Um, personally, I know I do, but I also know that when I get into that state, I don't want to do a routine. Um, and you're here for a rest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, weirdly enough, I didn't feel as depleted as I thought I would after that. Like, I don't have any ideas at the moment, like as in my ideas complete. Mm-hmm. I'm having a little break from that um, and I'm sort of just, but I don't feel like as decimated as I normally would. And I wonder if that's because I resolved something in that mm-hmm. story process that also resolved something for me mm-hmm. too. So, um, yeah, but like, I, I don't know. It's, it's really strange. I thought I would feel really messed up, but I think I must've been also feeling really bad that I couldn't write and I couldn't write the sequel. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm just, still high on that relief because I, I felt, you know, and I, you'll, I'm sure you'll understand coming from where we came from, um, the main streets of Chitton and <laughs> <laughs> Barker's Creek. No, but like that time and that period was such a difficult time to create and mm-hmm. produce work in. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I also just got to the point where I just didn't really have any inspiration or good feelings so I think just being able to write, I'm just so grateful to have that back because I felt like when you don't have that, all I did was watch TV. I swear mm. to God, it's like six months. It was like all I wanted to do was watch TV. Because nothing, of lockdown. We should, well, nothing, we yeah, have, nothing yeah. interested me. I was just like, I just wanted to detach and numb. And and it was like the only way that it was like my, my shiny TV my shiny TV said it was all I wanted. And now I don't want to watch it at all. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. So there's no date for the sequel, but no. the, the first book is out now. I Shot the Devil, out now via Hachette. Love to continue this chat. I think we will, probably yeah. across the road, but unfortunately we can't. Oh, no. Time no. Constraints. <laughs> um, but Ruth McIver, thank you so much for dropping in again to The Quiet Carriage. And, thank uh, you, and Paul. Enjoy your festival. Thank you, you too. And that is all we have time for today on The Quiet Carriage, down here in Southwest WA, for the Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival 2022. You can listen to us on 94.9 Main FM, the Community Radio Network, and across all good podcast platforms. And also a big thank you to our sponsors, Stone Man's Bookroom. And also remember that you can find me across all the socials under the name Paul J. Laverty. Until next time... Keep reading.